Is everyone awake? <laughs> Good morning. Good to be with you. Uh, again, if you're visiting, really glad that you're here with us. We are uh, starting a new series in the Song of Songs today, also known as Song of Solomon in the Old Testament. And I need to start this series with a little bit of a preface, uh, because people get weird about this book. Um, it's, it's one of those places in the Bible that just has a very wide interpretive range, like all kinds of like extremes that people could get to in this book. Um, and like it, it, it applies to almost everything about it. So even the authorship, some people believe it's written by Solomon. Some people just think it's written in the style of Solomon, in the style of his wisdom. Uh, some people think it's, uh, it's one love story in this couple that is progressing chronologically. So it moves through them, them meeting together and then the, the courting process, dating process to their marriage. We do see a wedding in the middle and then deepening in their marriage. Um, some people think it is this one relationship, but it kind of like flashes back and flashes forward. And so it's not chronological. And some people think there's an anthology of poems. They're kind of arranged together, but they are separate and distinct poems that are making up the song. Um, and there's, you know, there's, there's a lot more than that even. Like, um, some people think that the, the and they get really, um, really insistent about who are the people in the poem. So some people say it's Solomon. Solomon is the man in the poem, and the woman is, is his bride. Uh, some people think that uh, it's, it's a shepherd and like a peasant girl, and it's their love story. And some people think like it's not specific people, but like the woman is representative of all women, and the man is representative of all men, and that's the way that you're supposed to read it. And then there's the actual like uh, meaning and way that you interpret the purpose of the book. And so uh, the interpretation that's gotten really popular recently is to look at Song of Songs as a book that's all about marriage and love, romantic love, and intimacy, to include sexual intimacy. And so when we read it, those are the things that we should, we should understand. This is the purpose of the book. It's telling us about these things, and that's it. Uh, what was really popular for a long time uh, the way to interpret it, was that the Song of Songs is all about Jesus. It's all about the gospel and our relationship with Jesus. And so that's what we look at when we read it. And, and we don't even really think about uh, marriage or, or sexual intimacy or those parts of it. We don't, you know, that's not even part of it. Um, part of the reason for this very broad range of interpretation in this book is that it is poetry. And, and poetry kind of lends itself to lots of ways to interpret um, we know it's not meant always to be taken literally and not read like it's narrative. Um, it's meant to like evoke certain emotions and feelings and it communicates in metaphor and imagery. Um, it's just people get weird about this book. And I say all this for us as we're getting into it so that we can start with the right posture. Now the beginning of this series that we need to be humble uh, with, with whatever interpretation, the way that we receive what's written in it, um, we, you know, whatever makes most sense to you. And I'm gonna try to, as much as I can, just say here are the different things that people think. Um, just to go like, I could be wrong about this, or, or you know, I, there could be stuff that I'm missing in here. Like there's so much in the song, I almost feel like it's the Lion King. Um, you know, the Lion King starts with that song. There's, there's more to see that can ever be seen. Circle of Life, classic. 
Uh, like there's so much in this. There's, there's probably more in this than we're actually going to be getting as we're, we're reading through it. And our goal in this series is not to see everything that could possibly be seen. It's not to answer every question that could possibly be asked. It's to hear what is it that God wants to tell us through his word. What is God actually trying to tell us through Song of Songs? And there's so much that he has to say uh, about, about our own relationships, it, whether you're you know, it, uh, not married yet, or you're getting married, or you are married, or, or even in your friendships, things like navigating conflict. Like There's so much good stuff about human relationships to glean through this. So it is about that. But then also, yeah, the whole Bible is about Jesus. And we know that because that's what Jesus tells us. So like Luke 24, verse 27, we read, And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he, Jesus, interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. Right? And when he's speaking to the Pharisees, he says, you're looking in the scriptures for salvation, and it's they that testify about me. Like the point of the Bible is not you. It's not about you. It's not about here's how you need to live your life. Here are the things you need to do. It's not about that. It, it's informative about that, but it's not what it's mainly about. It's mainly about Jesus. It's about showing you, you, you need a Savior. Here's how you recognize your Savior. Here's who your Savior is. Here's how you can know your Savior. Here's how you can put your faith in your Savior. Here's how you can walk with Him. Like it's all about Jesus and how, how good He is, how worthy He is of our trust and our faith and our worship. And that includes when we see the Bible talking about something like marriage, because the Apostle Paul makes it explicit for us. He says this in Ephesians 5. He says, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. And then down to verse 32, he says, This mystery is profound, and I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. That, like, there's this mysterious aspect of marriage where the purpose of it is actually to show us what our relationship with Jesus is like through faith. Like the same way that a husband loves his wife, that's how Jesus loves us, the way that he sacrifices, he gives himself for us, the, the commitment that we have in marriage, the, the trust, the forgiveness, serving. Like it's all modeled on the way that Jesus has loved us and how he's behaved to us and the relationship he invites us into. And, like, Jesus is perfect. We're not perfect. And so, like, all the imperfect parts of marriage, like, this is, this, this is the ideal. This is what it should be. This is what it's pointing to. Uh, and so this is why, like, even if you're not married and you have no interest in marriage, you still need Song of Songs. Like, this book still has so much for you that you need to receive from God. Um, because you still have those, those really deep and profound aspects of the marriage relationship, you, you still have that in your relationship with Jesus. Song of Songs, it is, um, it clearly is, you know, in, in the way that it's about marriage and, and romantic love, uh, it's a celebration of love, um, and it even emphasizes like physical touch and, and sexual intimacy in ways that you might not expect the Bible to really be that celebratory and that, that open about it. Um, but it's not, it's not only just all that. Th there is also an element of caution to it 
And so I'm not going to like preach all those points now because it, it gets explicit about it later. But we will see as we read through it, it's not a small point in the Song of Songs that it encourages us to view sex the way that God encourages us to view it, um, which is not the way that the world kind of views it, where, where it becomes an idol, becomes like the substitute God that you give yourself to and you feel like you have an absolute right to it. Uh, and not only are you entitled to, to sex, but you're in, entitled to like consequence-free, uh, casual, like however you want, and like no one can say anything or you can't be inconvenienced in any way. Like there's, there's this uh, overblown presence that it takes in some people's lives where it, it grows to the point of idolatry. Um, so we're not going to view it that way. We're going to see that through the song, but we're also not going to view it the way that like a stuffy, hyper-legalist uh, type of person might view it, where it's like forbidden, it's, it's taboo, like you can't talk about it, you get like, you kind of have to do it for procreation, but like you can't like it, uh, and like it's it just like swept under the rug, like that's not how the Song of Solomon, the Song of Songs treats it. God intends us to understand that, that sex is a gift, he's given it to us to be enjoyed within the uh, the boundaries of a marriage, right? That committed relationship. Uh, it's something that bonds you to the other person. It's an expression of intimate love. It's becoming one with them. And even though it is a good thing, it doesn't become elevated to the ultimate thing. Um, like, you can have a perfectly fulfilling life uh, without it, without ever getting married or, or experiencing it, just like Jesus did and the Apostle Paul did. You can still experience that, that closeness and that fulfillment in your other relationships, particularly in, in your faith and your relationship with Jesus and the way that he loves you. And so, so that's our preface. This is kind of like a lot going on, but let's, uh, let's get into it. Song of Songs, chapter one, verse one says this. The Song of Songs, which is... Solomon's. In, uh, in the Hebrew language, when you want to do superlative, uh, like we have the word best, it means like it's good, but it's the best good. Uh, we have a separate word for that. In Hebrew, they do repetition. So they would say, you know, good, good. There's good, but then like the good of the good, like the really good stuff, uh, that's how they'd express best, the good of the good. Uh, it's why the angels in front of the throne of God in heaven are singing holy, holy, holy. They repeat it three times. Uh, that, that, that tells you something. Um, this is the song. Like, there's songs, but this is the song of all the songs. Like, this is the best song. That's what it's telling us. Uh, God's Word is saying this is the best song that there is. You know, we got all the Psalms. This one's better. Uh, and it says that, it, which is Solomon's. And, and this is personally why I believe that, yes, Solomon did write this. Um, I just think that's the most straightforward way to understand it. I think that's what it's trying to say. Uh, I understand when people are hesitant about that and they think that it wasn't Solomon because Solomon had 300 wives and 700 concubines and like that's not very good. Um, you know, it's not, it's, that's not the ideal for like your romantic life if you want to honor God. Um, and so like what business does that guy have to write, you know, this most compelling love story ever ever put down on paper. Um, 
you know, maybe, I th- maybe it's like an act of repentance. Maybe it's regret. and Like, this is what I wish I'd done. This is what I know would have been best to do. He is the wisest man who ever lived apart from Jesus. So even if he's not putting all that wisdom to work in his own life, he still has it. Because that's what, what the Bible tells us. He's the wisest man who ever lived apart from Jesus. Uh, it is part of the, uh, the Bible's wisdom literature. And so people who go, well, it's, it's just written like Solomon's other wisdom stuff. That's like, uh, I mean, Job is wisdom literature. Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, Song of Songs. We know that Solomon wrote Proverbs and Ecclesiastes. And so, um, so yeah, I, I think he probably wrote this. And whether it's referring to himself or it's just an example of, I don't know. But I don't think it super matters. Um, anyways, verse 2. And this is the woman speaking. It says, Let him kiss me with the kisses of his mouth, for your love is better than wine. Your anointing oils are fragrant, your name is oil poured out. Therefore, virgins love you. Draw me after you. Let us run. The king has brought me into his chambers. And then the others, the chorus of the others. We will exult and rejoice in you. We will extol your love more than wine. Rightly do they love you. Uh, one of the characteristics you'll find in most Bibles, like if you're just reading this in your own Bible, or even if you look, on it, uh, look at it online, um, you see headers over like the sections of speech. Sometimes they're slightly different from different translations. It's not original to the scripture. This is something that the translators have put in for us to better be able to, to read and understand it. And so I do think it is helpful. And uh, the woman is speaking first. Her perspective is given first. And she actually has the majority of the book. Uh, 53% of the song is her perspective. The man's perspective is about 39%. And then the rest are these, these others who we'll talk about in just a minute. Um, what, what's so interesting in this, and maybe like not what you would expect if, if you're not familiar with the book, is that so much of it is the woman taking initiative in the relationship. Like she's not just waiting around. And this would seem to be a very strong challenge to a certain mindset that you sometimes find in like a traditional religious setting that it would be improper for, wom- for women to take initiative like we see her taking initiative. You know, like that's not ladylike or whatever. Like this seems like a pretty strong challenge to that. Um, you know, the Bible doesn't seem to have a problem with it. She's, she's pretty intense. Hey, let him kiss me with the kisses of his mouth. It's not like a little peck on the cheek. This appears to be French. Uh, <laughs> and then, you know, draw me after you. The king has brought me into his chambers. The only reason that you're being brought into chambers is for like one specific thing, and it's sex, all right? And either, you know, this could be Solomon, and it is the actual king's chambers, or this isn't Solomon, but, like, she's referring to him as the king because of, like, the, you know, the, the level of respect that she's, like, he's, the, like, a king to me. It could be that. Um, but because the song opens with this in the, the very beginning, the second verse, let him kiss me with the kiss of his mouth, uh, he's brought me into his chambers. This is why I don't think this is, like, a chronological progression of a relationship, that it's like starting here, and they're not married yet, um, that would be, uh, you know, if an unmarried woman was getting kissed with the kisses of some guy's mouth in their culture, 
uh, it would be scandalous. You know, it would not be elevated. Like, people wouldn't be reading this and go, huh, I should teach my kids about this. Uh, like, no, it wouldn't be the Bible. They, you know, I think that they had an understanding. This, this is a married couple. Like, the one thing that I could see kind of getting away with it, I have a friend who thinks this, uh, that she's, like, imagining and looking forward to marriage. Like, she's anticipating marriage. She's going, like, when we get married, this is going to be so great. And, and she's kind of imagining and viewing it that way. And maybe, but no, she's married. <laughs> and, uh, and you'll notice, even though she does take the initiative here, this is, this is kinda, she doesn't go all the way. She's not fully in charge, like, I'm going to kiss him with the kisses of my mouth. Like, this is just going to happen. Uh, she's, she's inviting him. Let, let him do that. Like, this is something I want, to ha- I want him to have some initiative in this as well. Uh, it's not just about the desire that she feels for him, but a big part of it for her is I, I also want to feel desired by him. And that's why she says, draw me after you. Like, don't, don't make me do all the work. I want to know that you're as invested in this as, as I am. Uh, one criticism among many, I'm sure, that I'd like to make about modern relationships that, that the song just kind of shines a spotlight on is too many modern relationships are built on, like, these weird games with, like, strange rules and it's, like, these unspoken things that people do with each other. And so just examples, I don't know if these are exactly, like, but these are the ones that come to mind. Things like, uh, if you like a girl, like, you can't call her right away. You have to wait a few days, and then you can. Like, you don't want to seem too eager or too desperate. And then, like, girls have the rule, like, you got to play hard to get, which is you pretend that you don't like him so that he likes you. Like, I don't, there's these weird rules, strange games that people are playing in their relationships. And like, if you're trying to play this game and they don't know the rules or they don't feel like playing that game, like it's just not going to go well for you. It's if, if your dating life is not great and you're doing these games, maybe stop. You know, like maybe just be honest. Maybe just be straightforward. That could be better. Who knows? Give, give it a try. Because um, no one wants to be in a relationship or even like anticipate starting a relationship where it feels like, I really like them, but I don't feel very liked in return. Like, that's such an imbalance. Like, no one feels good about it. It's not going to make anyone feel happy. It's, it's, it's better to just be honest. And... It's also important to remember, like, to actually communicate it, even if, like, you are feeling it and you feel like they should know it. This is something that happens the longer that you're in a relationship. And I've, like, I've kind of noticed this myself. Like, I've been married for seven years, and just the longer that you're in it, the, the more you start to forget, like, when's the last time, like, I say I love you, but when's the last time I really made you feel, like, I love you, I really appreciate you, I still have this desire, like, I'm still going to pursue you. Because what I found for myself is I just start thinking, like, well, she knows that. <laughs> like, it's not like we got married, you know? Like, we have kids. Like, of course I love you. I wouldn't have done those things if I didn't. Um, but it's still, like, it, it still matters to, to, to hear that. And so that, that's a way that the song has been, you know, kind of correcting me this week as I've been looking at it. Uh, Your love is better than wine, she says. And, and there's another thing that maybe would be surprising, but, like, wine is not really looked down on in the Bible as, like, this, you can't ever touch it, you can't ever have it. Um, it's, 
it's a bit like sex, where it is good in the right context or used in the right way. Um, Psalm 104 tells us that. says that wine gladdens the hearts of man. Like, that's what it's intended to be, like a gift that is this good thing. And there is a wrong way to go about it, and the Bible warns about that. If you become drunk, if you become enslaved to it, if it becomes this overbearing presence in your life, it could bring ruin to your life, and so you want to be careful and cautious about that. Um, but used in the right way, it is a pleasant thing. It can give you like this, this feeling, this sense of euphoria. And she says, like, your love is better than that. Like, it feels better than that. Uh, she, she enjoys him. She enjoys being with him. And this is where I think the, the great poet of our age, uh, Beyonce, got inspiration for her song, Drunken Love. You know, I, I, could, I swear, she was doing her devotions, she was reading Song of Songs, as she often does, and she's like, that's it, Drunken Love. I'm going to write a song about that. Uh, and then this part, I love this part in verse 3, uh, your, your anointing oils are fragrant, so it just smells good. They didn't have like cologne and deodorant, this was their version of that. Uh, but then she's like connecting it, your, your name is oil poured out, therefore virgins love you. Um, this is what I, I, just reading that, you start to gain early on a real appreciation for this man in this relationship. When we see name in the Bible like that, it's referring to your reputation, your character, how you're viewed by others, right? What she's saying is uh, his, his name, his reputation is going forward before him, kind of like the, the pleasant smells of these oils, right? It, it, it's a pleasant thing where, therefore, the, the young women love you, like you're esteemed, you're looked up to, you, people understand that, that you're a... You're a um, you know, the, the quality and the value of, of your character. Uh, what this tells us about him is he, um, he has not fallen into the trap of, like, waiting and watching and searching and, like, spending all the time looking for the right person and, and trying to find the right person who's going to come along. Um, instead, what he's doing with his time is he's worked on himself, so that he could become the kind of man who is worthy for the person he'd eventually find that he'd want to commit himself to in marriage. Like, I'm not just trying to find the right partner for me, but I'm actually trying to become the person who's worthy of that partner. And that's how I'm going to spend my time before we, we actually get there. There's a consistent message throughout the Bible. You can read, you can read the whole thing, and it's not going to contradict itself on this. Um, you're not perfect. You are flawed. You are sinful. You require repentance and change. And by faith, you are able to grow. And that never stops. We never get all the way there, but we also don't have to pretend there's no such thing as progress. Like, there is growth. There is process. There is, like, a path to maturity, all right? And what you want, when you enter into something as serious as marriage, you want two people who've made some progress, all right? You don't want two people who are at the starting line. You want people who have already started progressing. They've already started growing, progressing and becoming less selfish, like less prideful, more humble, more gracious, 
less angry, more honest, right? More like Jesus. And if you're not married today and you want to be at some point, whether you've found the person that you want to be married to or you haven't found them yet, uh, if you want to have a good marriage, there are steps that you could be taking today that are going to serve you well for that. You need to grow. You need to make progress. You need to mature. When the others chime in here, um, these seem to be maybe the, the young women that she referred to, therefore the young women love you. These are just the people that are around them, the people that are in their lives. That's what most people seem to think about them. Um, and they, they approve. They approve of this marriage. They approve of this relationship. And that's important. Like, if you're going to get married to someone and everyone around you, everyone in your life is saying, I don't think this is maybe such a good idea. They're like, maybe wait. Maybe, uh, you know, do some more prep work before you get there. Um, your response to that should not be like, ah, oh, all the haters are out, out there. Like, and you're, none of you are coming to the wedding. Like, if everyone's saying it, you should probably listen. Like, there might be something there. When, when you have the approval and you get the validation of the approval of everyone else around you, like, that's a good indicator. It's a good indicator that, that you guys are ready for this and you're making a good decision. You should not just, like, instantly write that stuff off. Um, the song continues in verse 5, and, uh, and she continues speaking. She says this. She says, I am very dark but lovely. O daughters of Jerusalem, like the tents of Kedar, like the curtains of Solomon, do not gaze at me because I am dark, because the sun has looked upon me. My mother's sons were angry with me. They made me keeper of the vineyards, but my own vineyard I have not kept. Tell me, you whom my soul loves, where you pasture your flock, where you make it lie down at noon. For why should I be like one who veils herself beside the flocks of your companions. This, this is really interesting. The woman in this uh, song is such a complex character, um, but she's letting out some of her fears and her insecurities here. Uh, I'm, I'm very dark, but lovely. Do, do not gaze at me because I'm dark, because the sun has looked upon me. Like, she, she has some confidence in herself that, that I, I know my, my worth and I know my beauty, but... There's part of her appearance she feels this need almost to apologize about, where it, it would seem that in this culture, um, tanned skin is, is less esteemed for beauty than untanned skin, and, and maybe just a sign of luxury, you know, that if you don't have to go out in the fields and work and you can be inside, and, and that somehow became the, uh, the ideal for them. Um, I think our culture... You know, it was different for a while. I think we've turned a, co uh, a corner. We've not fully gotten there, but it seemed that for a while people were really bought into, like, that, that really deep tan as, like, the essence of beauty, like the snooky tan, you know? Just, like, like you, it not that, like, anything about light skin or dark skin, but, like, I got to go to the tanning booth, like, I got to get the spray tan, like, whatever it is, just, like, you know, totally snookied out. Um, and I, I, I see less of that, I think. Uh, but in any case, there's an area of insecurity for her. Uh, we, we don't know for sure, like, you know, she like, compares herself to the tens of Kedar and the, the curtains of Solomon. 
Um, we don't have anything that tells us exactly how dark those things are. That's the implication. Uh, Kedar, they were a nomadic tribe, and they had tents that they would travel with and live in, and um, you know, the curtains of Solomon, those must have been dark as well. But we kind of get like a backstory about her that um, it seems like her father's not around because her brothers have this position of authority over her. They're the ones that make her go out and work. Don't really know why they were angry with her. Um, and I'm not sure we can even draw an implication from that. Uh, but in any case, she goes out and she's working. She's fulfilling her, her duties and responsibilities. And while she's doing that, she says, my own vineyard I haven't kept. So like I, I did the work in the vineyard that I'm required to do, but I haven't really been able to attend to my own beauty. Um, and this is, this is important for, uh, like, we're going to see him respond to her. And, and address specifically this, this insecurity that she's feeling in, in just a minute. Um, but what's interesting about her is that even with expressing those insecurities, it's not seemingly an obstacle for her to wanting to be with him. And, you know, as, as much as she has a fear, you know, centered over this, this um, you know, the, her darkened skin, she still wants to go and be with him. She still wants to spend time with him. It's not like, well, there's no way you could possibly like me. It's just, uh, it's just something that she feels like sharing with him. And she, she again takes initiative. She says, tell me, you whom my soul loves, where you pasture your flock, where you make it lie down. Like she just wants to meet him. She wants to go spend time with him. And, uh, and this is, again, one of those things where, you know, if this is actually about Solomon, then this is just a poetic expression for like going to find him and spend time with him because he's not a shepherd <laughs> he's a king um and so so maybe it's a poetic expression in that way or maybe he really is a shepherd and then the king brought me into his chambers that's the thing that's a metaphor see what i mean like people who are like too locked in on like this is definitely what it's about i just don't know about that um but in any case like we still get the meaning out of it uh, she wants to know where he's going to be, and, um, and she wants to go spend time with him. It's kind of like this pastoral scene that we're given. Uh, and uh, in, in verse 8, here he finally responds, or we finally hear him speak. He says this, If you do not know, O, o most beautiful among women, follow in the tracks of the flock and pasture your young goats beside the shepherd's tents. I compare you, my love, to a mare among Pharaoh's chariots. Your cheeks are lovely with ornaments, your neck with strings of jewels, and the chorus of the others. We will make for you ornaments of gold studded with silver. He starts with this kind of uh, playful response to her. He's not saying exactly where he's going to be. He's kind of telling her how to find him. Like if you want to know where I am, look for these tracks, follow them, and then you'll, you'll, you'll come and be with me. Um, you know, maybe he's responding to what she said earlier, like, I want you to draw me after you. And he's just kind of being flirtatious with her. It's like, here, I'm going to draw you after me. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to tell you how you can kind of follow the way to come and find me. Um, but, but listen to this in verse 9. He says, I compare you to a mare among Pharaoh's chariots. Uh, ch chariots are instruments of war. They're like ancient tanks, and they're pulled by horses, typically pulled by stallions which are boy horses. Mares are girl horses. For all you non-horse people out there who maybe don't know these things, um, what's, what's so cool about this and the way, like, this, uh, this, this creative thing that he makes for her, 
we, we actually know about this, this ancient wartime strategy where the enemies of Egypt sent out a mare in front of Pharaoh's chariots to distract all the stallions. They'd be like, wow, that's a horse. That's a real beautiful horse. And they all get distracted, and then they could, you know, defeat them and defeat the chariots. Uh, you know, it's such a beautiful horse for all these stallions. Like, that actually happened. Um, and, you know, horses, there were dark horses, you know, black, brown, dark-colored horses. It seems like he's responding to her insecurity about, like, because I'm so dark, I'm not really as beautiful as I could be. She's, like, apologizing about it. And he gives her this great thoughtful response where he goes, you know what you are to me? You know what I think about when I think of you? Like, you're the girl who, who, when you go out in front of the guys, they're all looking at you. Like, they're, like you're the one who's driving them all crazy. Like you're the one who's making them stop in their tracks. And, uh, and this reminds me of One Direction. And I don't know if this is a sign that there's going to be a lot of pop references in this sermon series, but there might be. And uh, we're just all going to deal with it together. But that song, um, You Don't Know You're Beautiful, That's What Makes You Beautiful, which... I'm not fully sold on that. That's what makes her beautiful. But it seems like it's saying, like, you don't see it. You don't see how beautiful you are. I see it, though, right? I understand how beautiful you are. And this is another thing that Christians get weird about. I'm picking on weird Christians today. But, um, but Christians sometimes uh, start thinking, um, they start thinking, like, I, I, if, if I really want to be holy, if I really want to be a mature Christian, like, I, I just want to take all this stuff seriously, and, like, I see in the Bible where it says beauty is fleeting, and I know that the soul is eternal, that's forever, and what, what could end up happening is you can, you can become unintentionally insulting, like, if, if you really take that too far, because, like, if you say to your, your girlfriend or your fiancé or your wife, you go, um, you know, I don't care about beauty. Your heart is beautiful to me. There's a part of that that's kind of nice. But there's another part of that where you just said, like, you're a little bit ugly, you know? <laughs> like, and that's, that's how someone's going to hear that. If you say, like, I don't care about beauty, like, well... Help me feel beautiful, you know? Um, like, don't do that. It's, it's okay to see beauty. It's not a sin to see beauty. What, what you don't have to do is, like, you know, conform to the standards of the world around us and, and like, unrealistic beauty standards that are promoted. And this is something that I get afraid for. Like, I've got two young daughters. I just get afraid for young girls because, I mean, it's always been a thing with, like, movies and magazines and stuff like that. But, but now just everyone, like anything that people put online, there's so many like filters and stuff that put forward, like, like that's not a real person. But they're going to see that and they're going to feel bad about themselves or get body image issues because they're going to go, oh, I could never look like that. And it's like, yeah, you never can because no one does. Because it's not real. Like it's all artificial. It's all fake. Like we don't need to have like this this, uh, you know, this beauty standard that's made by just these totally unrealistic things. Uh, but what you can do is genuinely see the real beauty in your partner. And like, yeah, their, their heart and their character are, are a big part of that. And it is the more important thing. Um, 
But when you love someone, you're, you're going to see things in them that you find beautiful. Things that they might not see themselves or they might not believe about themselves, but you see a beauty in them. And that's a really great thing you can do for them. Right? You see him, you see the man here listening to her, listening to her insecurity, and he, he responds and he affirms to her, like, you're the most beautiful of all the women to me. You know, that, that's how I see you. And he does it in this, like, really beautiful, creative way. You don't all have to be poets, but, like, you know, try a little bit. And he acknowledges the efforts she's, she's made, like the jewelry that she's wearing. He kind of, uh, you know, compliments her on that. And, uh, and when the others speak, when we get the chorus of the others here, that seems like maybe um, he's joining in with her, he's possibly joining in with her, that like, we're going to make these ornaments for you. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to help you and uh, make you feel more beautiful. Like, I'll do that. I'll, I'll add to this. Um, this is another thing that, could possibly be surprising about the Song of Songs that uh, it does not, you know, condemn the use of jewelry as like, well, you know, only vain, shallow people would ever wear jewelry or anything like that. Um, like, you know, Christians could never wear jewelry. Uh, there, there are times where the Bible talks about, like, excessiveness, um, but this doesn't seem to be one of those times. And, and a lot of times, like, the prophets will condemn people wearing all these all this jewelry but that's in cases where uh the prophet is condemning like you know gross injustice and suffering of people and then in the in the meantime there's people living lavishly and in luxury and like that's the indictment um there is a problem with excessiveness there is a problem with with vanity if you're getting your sense of self-worth from your physical beauty that's something to work through because your your worth comes from uh, the, the God who loves you and who's made you and who's given your life purpose. Uh, so you, you might have to work through that, but like just wearing jewelry is not a problem and no one needs to be the Christian police that can say like, ah, you can't wear that. You know, it's just not helpful. Um, let's turn my page. This is, uh, this is as far as we're getting into the song today. So just 11 verses and we'll pick up from here next week. Um, I hope you can see in this how it is, uh, it is wisdom and it is informative about, you know, human relationships and love. Um, but we haven't talked yet about how this points to Jesus. And so uh, I know you've all been holding your breath. So, uh, so here we go. In, uh, in the beginning of this, one of the things that we find um, very prominent is the importance of mutual desire for one another in a relationship. Like, she wants to be close with him, and, and she also wants to know that he wants to be close with her, and he, sh he does that. He tells her that. Um, and the love that they share together, she says, is better than wine. Like, she really enjoys him. She enjoys being with him. She enjoys the relationship they have. Uh, where some people fall into error when it comes to faith in Jesus. And, and either it, it could be like it starts this way, and this is the way the whole kind of journey of faith begins, uh, or it becomes this way over time. But what, what some people end up doing is they treat Jesus almost like an equation. You know, I, I'm a sinner. That's a negative. 
Jesus takes my sin. He goes to the cross. He's, he's punished on the cross. It's like a, it's like a double negative results in forgiveness, right? That's a positive. If I put my faith in him, he forgives me, gives me eternal life. And that's just kind of the way that God works. And, uh, and, and it's almost like this academic understanding of who Jesus is. Um, you know, not exactly like that, but kind of close to that. Some people, the way that they approach Jesus. Or that Jesus is kind of like a business partner. This is a pretty common one. Um, I'm going to do my part in this partnership I'm going to go to church, I'm going to pray, I'm going to read the Bible, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to try and live the way that Jesus tells me to live, I'm going to try and tell people the good news about Jesus, I'm going to do all of those things, it's my part, and then Jesus' part, he's going to, uh, he's going to save me, he's going to bless me, he's going to protect me and provide for me, he's going to give me eternal life, that's his part, it's like this mutually beneficial thing, it's like a business partnership, um, the core problem in both of these approaches to faith in Jesus is it turns Jesus into a means to an end. Uh, he's a way for you to get something that you want. But that's not the way that Jesus offers himself to you. Listen to what Paul says in Galatians 2, verse 20. He says this. He says, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me, and the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Paul is describing his Christian life, and he says, Jesus, the Son of God, he's the one who loved me and gave himself for me. Like, Jesus desired me. Jesus pursued me no matter what the cost is to him, and it's a great cost to him. And because of that, because of how Jesus loved me, because of how he pursued me, because of how he desires me, I'm now living for him, right? I'm not living for myself, and I'm trying to use Jesus to get the things that I want. Jesus is the thing that I want. I want to be close to Jesus. I want to know Jesus. I want to walk with Jesus. I want to know this person who loves me so much. He'd do all these things for me. I want to know this person who'd suffer on my behalf. I want to know this person who created me. Because Jesus doesn't want a business partner. He wants a bride. I mean, that's what we read in the beginning. Paul, Ephesians 5. Husbands, love your wives like Christ loved the church and gave himself for her. He doesn't want a people who are just kind of going through the motions they're trying to do all the right things, but they're just going through the motions. Their heart isn't in it. Their heart isn't with Jesus. Uh, he wants a people who love him, who want to walk with him, who want to know him and grow closer to him. And the insecurities that we see from the woman, you know, she says, don't, don't look at me. I'm, I'm dark. I feel this ugliness about me. Um, her fears about that. There, there is a real and legitimate fear in us that because of our sin, you know, we're not worthy of the, the love that Jesus uh, supposedly has for us. And, and maybe he would reject us because of the greatness of our sin, the ugliness of our sin. And sin is ugly. You know, it's the ugliest thing in us. And, and this is something, I mean, every person knows this. If you're going to be honest with yourself, you know this. You have things in your past 
that you want to keep hidden, you don't want people to know about. You have things buried in your heart. Like every person has regrets. Every person has shame over some things. Um, no person is ever going to be completely honest and speak every thought that pops into your head because you know that'd be a disaster. You know that'd be so offensive. You know it'd be so hurtful to people around you. Like we have these ugly thoughts and, and even ugly desires buried in our hearts that we keep hidden because we think as soon as people know about them, they're going to know, like, that's not right, that's not good. And especially towards God. You know, God is our creator who, who loves us and gives everything to us, and, and our whole attitude towards God is, this is mine now. Back off, you know, leave me alone. Uh, I, don't, I don't need you. Like, I'm going to take everything that you've given me. I don't need you. Leave me alone. The, the ingratitude, uh, the, the disrespect, the lack of love, frankly, the audacity, that's ugliness in us. And, and the more that we're honest about that and the more that we see it, the more that it should feel like an, an obstacle, an impediment in our relationship with God because we know it's standing in the way. And Jesus sees all of it. Like, we keep it hidden from each other. We can't hide it from him. He sees us. He knows us. He knows everything that's in us. But still, seeing all of it, he goes to the cross anyways for us. And he doesn't go to the cross because we've somehow made ourselves worthy of that, that we deserve it or that we've earned it but his his decision to give us grace is the thing that makes us worthy it's because he has loved us that we know we are worthy of love that we now are worthy of love because he's made the decision about it jesus has given so much for you he has shed his blood for you. He suffered on the cross for you because he loves you. Yeah, our sin, just like the, the woman is, is aware of this thing about her that she feels insecure about or she understands is not um, you know, what she thinks would be ideal, she still goes to spend time with her beloved just because we have sin in our lives still following Jesus. We still struggle with sin it's not, it's not something that should keep us from seeking Jesus and being close to him. Like, you should never adopt the mindset that I need to get rid of this and I need to clean myself up first, and then when I've done that, then I can go be with Jesus. Then I can draw close to him. Then I can seek him. Because you can't. You can't, you can't get rid of your own sin. You can't clean yourself up. Those are things that Jesus does for you. And he wants to. Just like the man says that he wants to, uh, to make ornaments of gold for her. He wants to enhance her beauty. Like, like Jesus does that for us. Like Jesus dresses us in the robes of his own righteousness. Jesus doesn't love us because we are beautiful, but it is Jesus' love for us that makes us beautiful, that makes our hearts more beautiful, sets us free from our sin, so we can follow him and follow his way. And our whole lives become more beautiful, more full of joy, 
peace, security, knowing that we are loved by this person who went this far and is so committed to us. I hope that's something you know. I hope that's something that encourages you. I hope that's something that if you're not a Christian today, you would understand. You can receive this gift that's being offered to you. You can put your faith in Jesus, your trust in Jesus, and he will start this work in your heart and in your life. Let me pray for us.